0: Magnetic repulsion. Some of us are born sun-kissed, that's me. As a biracial black and Japanese woman, I often present as racially ambiguous, but obviously as a woman of color. I have a tan complexion year round, and in the sunniest summers, my skin often turns a shade of deep caramel. My experiences with colorism manifest as a magnetic repulsion, two equal forces repelling each other, wherein my perceived lightness or darkness produces messages that are in constant conflict with one another. I understand colorism to be rooted in anti-blackness around the world. The underlying message that lighter skin is better skin inherently disadvantages black people and others with similar dark skin, dark-skinned Latinos, South Asians. Within the American Black community, light skin is privileged. Those with light skin have received certain privileges since slavery, such as indoor work on the plantation, and later, relatively more access to dominant American cultural institutions than their darker skinned counterparts enjoy. Within Asian and Asian American communities, light skin is similarly privileged, cherished, sought-after, and often connected to perceptions about social class. The politics of skin shade in both of these communities live in me. However, the messages that I receive about my skin color from these communities are often conflicting, like a magnetic repulsion, both disadvantaging and privileging me at the same time. Growing up in a primarily Black family in Southern California shaped my experiences with race and colorism. My father was born in Nagasaki, Japan, and he immigrated to America in the late 1980s. My mother, a Black woman, comes from a large family of varying shades. Great-grandma was the lightest of us all. Cousin Dion and my sister Jasmine fall within the median, and Cousin Dana's skin is rich obsidian. Mom often paired our fried r- chicken with rice, taught me to count to cha- 10 in Japanese, and ensured that I had both the African and Japanese collectible Barbies. Beyond these efforts, my upbringing was culturally black, and while my japanese was not always seen, my blackness was more redil- readily visible. Though I recall my mother's attempts to make sure some Japanese influences were present in my life, I've never known what it means to be an Asian woman. And for much of my life, the only other people I have known of Japanese ancestry have been my father, twin brother, and Tracy, a classmate in school. Soon, the Asian woman who owned the local black beauty supply shop Was the first Asian woman to show any interest in me. She gave me free barrettes with each visit to the shop. Racialized experiences in my life produce messages with great polarity, particularly with women from the racial communities to which I belong. My interactions with Asian women typically render me invisible, wholly unseen. With these women, the news that I too am Asian is more often than not, met with surprise. With wide eyes, I am asked, you are Japanese, and what? Or, how Japanese are you? To these women, something doesn't add up, and these experiences remind me that I don't look like other Japanese women. A few years ago, I visited my partner in Shanghai, China, where he'd been assigned to work. We stopped by his office so I could meet his supervisor and peers. After the initial introductions, the Asian women in the office surrounded me, poking and prodding. His supervisor asked, is this how your hair grows? As she tugged at my wild curly strands. I felt the distance between us in that moment and in the pit of my stomach, an aching pain because inside of me There was a black woman silently pleading with her, please don't touch my hair. On the train ride back to the hotel, I was surrounded by advertisements for skin lightening products on billboards and magazines. I did not encounter during my two week trip, a single person who looked like me. In a graduate level class in Wisconsin, an Asian American peer complained that we'd had too much sun this year. She was upset that her children were getting dark because they have such beautiful pale skin. When I commented that dark skin is beautiful too, she interrupted me to add, it's an Asian thing. In that moment, this Asian woman did not see me as Asian while at the same time insulting my own tan skin. She looked right through me, rendering me invisible as an Asian American woman. Apparently, I am too dark to be Asian, too dark to be Japanese. I am seen as an outsider. Interactions with black women can also be complicated. While I am generally seen as black, my blackness is at times challenged. My knowledge about and experiences within black communities support me in these challenges. And when all else fails, a photo of my mother will usually do. In my freshman year of college i attended a retreat with other scholars of color in a discussion about the use of language as a form of oppression i spoke about how the words bitch and nigga have been reclaimed by women and black people respectively as colloquial expressions of love for and validation of one another a black classmate stood up to express her disappointment that someone who is not black would use the n-word in the conversation while she looked directly at me this was the first time i had to explain myself and it was the first time that i felt my blackness challenged this experience caused me to consider my black and japanese identities and how they converge in me while i sometimes feel frustrated in those moments when my blackness is questioned especially since this is the reality I grew up in. I also understand that other black women, including my own mother and monoracial black sisters, experience blackness differently than I do. Like many other black women, I spent much of my early life pressing and flat ironing my hair to get it bone straight. In college, however, I began wearing my natural curly texture, doing little more than adding conditioning. I quickly learned that my natural hair is accepted everywhere, and I am complimented at least once a week. By comparison, many black women are stigmatized for their natural hair, often worn in tight curls, afros, and braids. And recently, Shea Moisture, a company that markets a wide variety of beauty products to women, primarily black women, faced backlash for their advertising campaign, which featured two white women and one light-skinned, loose-curled Black woman. Prioritizing Eurocentric traits, even in the Black model, neglected the millions of Black women whose features diverge from this image, women whose support serves as a foundation for the company's success. As a graduate student in Wisconsin, I participated in a dialogue with other Black women about the ad One woman asked the group to raise a hand if they had ever used Shea Moisture products, and most of the women in the room raised a hand. Then she asked that we raise a hand if we felt represented in the Shea Moisture ad. I was the only woman to raise a hand. Shea Moisture's hair products are centered on loving natural hair, a prominent issue in black hair care but the campaign's absence of dark-skinned, kinky-haired women who felt Shea Moisture's products were for them too, if not mainly, was a slap in the face. The ad campaign reflected the whitewashing of the brand. And when it comes to representation of Black women in the media, women like me with lighter skin and good hair are prioritized and privileged. Throughout my life, messages about my skin color have been contradictory, with equal and repelling forces from Asian and Black communities. Communities for which skin shade and colorism are especially deeply rooted and contentious. Anti-Blackness is pervasive in Asia and in the United States, and in both Asian American and Black American communities, light skin is privileged over dark. My relatively darker skin marks me as an outsider among Asians and among Japanese Americans. Because of my darker hue, I am not seen as Japanese and I am perceived as less beautiful by a culture that idealizes light white skin. But this same skin, my sun-kissed shade is viewed differently in the black community. While I am disadvantaged by dark skin among Asians and Asian Americans, I understand that I am privileged by light skin in the Black community. These experiences with colorism repel me towards and away from my own racial identities. They impact my ability to build lasting relationships with and to see myself in my racial peers. As I engage with others about colorism, I am constantly learning how people perceive each other, themselves and me. Through this learning, I am able to position myself as a purposeful actor in experiences where colorism is at play and maximize my impact in redefining what is known about biracial Asian black women and skin color privilege. Part three, aspirational whiteness. Do you want to be white? In 2014, Korean skincare brand, Alicia Koi, posed this very question to American consumers, particularly to Korean Americans, on a billboard in Koreatown, Queens, New York. Positioned alongside the provocative question was an East Asian model with light, near-white skin and a picture of the product she was advertising, a tinted moisturizing cream for women with so-called skin whitening properties. The ad was heavily criticized for its blatant racism, though at least one critic wondered whether it was merely a case of lost in translation. Nonetheless, the ad raises important questions. Are whitening products marketing pale skin or are they peddling the promise of whiteness itself? Is colorism about privileging light shades over dark or about venerating racial whiteness? Colorism among Asian-Americans is not always about so-called white worship. That is unbridled adoration of all things Caucasian and Western. In many parts of Asia, skin color discrimination existed long before any significant contact with Europeans. And in Japan and China, for instance, the preference for light skin has existed for centuries and arguably has to do with social class, not race. In a 2018 New York Times article, Andrea Chang examined the motivations underlying a recent spike in Asian-American women bleaching their hair blonde. According to Chang, not all Asian-American women go platinum with a desire of mirroring Western beauty ideals, but rather dyed hair as an expression of their creativity, personal style, and individuality and a rejection of the old-fashioned femininity norms of their parents' generation. Blonde hair is a personal choice. Clearly, white women dye their hair blonde all the time, and their motives are not psychoanalyzed under the proverbial microscope. Laura Miller, a professor of Japanese studies at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, Further argues that what they see in Asia, especially in Korea and Japan, is a lot of hybridity and playfulness with hair colors and styles, and adds when Asian Americans bleach their hair, they may not have in mind white Americans, but rather Asian celebrities such as Moga Mogami or Hyo Yeon Kin. Moreover, whether Asian American women really want to be white is a contentious and hotly debated question, and Rundia and Spickard argue that there is overwhelming evidence that they do not want to look or be white, but rather they want to look like wealthy, upper-class Asians. For some Asian ethnic groups, however, particularly those whose histories are deeply entwined with and shaped by European imperialism, value is perhaps placed not simply on possessing light skin, or light hair for that matter, but on whiteness itself. Whiteness for some is held out as a goal, something to which to aspire. In this section, Asian American women reveal how colorism in their ethnic communities and in their families is connected to the idealization of, and in some cases, desire for whiteness. Traits connected to whiteness are valued because whiteness itself is valorized and glamorized. Perhaps not surprising given the long history of European colonization in some parts of Asia, such as in India and the Philippines. European rulers held power and privilege over their Asian subjects for centuries and for the oppressed masses. Whiteness, And for the oppressed masses, whiteness became a symbol of status and sophistication. According to sociologist C.N. Lee at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, European colonization of non-white countries in Africa, Asia, and Central South America elevated European history and culture, including the physical appearances of whites as a racial group. This solidified Europeans' position at the top of the political, economic, cultural, and military hierarchy on a global scale. As their culture spread frequently by means of physical conquest, racially-based standards of beauty came to include light-colored hair and eyes, and most importantly, light skin. This is evident even today in post-colonial Asia, in the white is right mentality held by many Asians, wherein all things Caucasian and Western, including but not limited to physical appearance, are held up as superior to all things local. As described in the introduction, for example, Caucasian models are often employed to advertise products to Asian peoples across Asia. And author and editor Elaine Y. J. Lee writes about her experiences growing up in Seoul, South Korea, reminiscing that I'd been all too used to passing by Korean billboards with blonde, blue-eyed couples modeling, say, my dad's preferred domestic brand of golf wear. My eyes had grown so accustomed, passive, and immune to Western foreigners, modeling Asian brand apparel, that I hardly even noticed. She continues... Fair-skinned foreigners not only appear in fashion apparel campaigns, but also in magazine editorials and even television commercials for household products. This applies to many countries across East, Southeast, and South Asia, including Japan, India, Thailand, South Korea, China, and Singapore. In fact, a 2011 study of race in advertising found that in China and Malaysia, just as in the United States, the vast majority of mannequins were white, and most of the models used in advertisements were Caucasian. This was true especially for fashion ads, but also for a wide range of ads marketing cosmetics, eyewear, shoes, jewelry, and even electronics. Other studies have found that most clothing ads in Taiwan and Singapore feature Caucasian models, and most of the models used in ads in women's magazines in South Korea are Caucasian. Perhaps the use of Caucasian models for Asian brands simply represents Asia's attempt at racial diversity and inclusion, though notably Black models or those of other races are relatively rare. For instance, a study of ads in Korean women's magazines found that more than 70% of the models were Caucasian, while less than 1% were Black. The adulation given to Caucasians and Western beauty norms can be further observed in the ways in which white women are placed front and center on platforms specifically intended to showcase Asian beauty. Recently, Vogue India featured Kendall Jenner, Caucasian, as the cover model for their 10th anniversary special, special edition issue, and Vogue Japan's 15th anniversary cover starred Caucasian model Miranda Kerr. Regarding the latter, style blogger Eliza Romero admits that she finds it difficult that Japan, with its own prosperous fashion and modeling industry, couldn't find a single Japanese model to grace its cover. Likewise, many found it frustrating and highly improbable that no Indian woman among the more than millions in India and around the world could be found to represent Indian beauty in an Indian-based fashion magazine on its anniversary cover. One person tweeted in response, were all the Indian women unavailable? As the magazine faced considerable backlash, criticism and accusations of whitewashing something that is all too common in Asia, just as it is in the United States. Perhaps globalization and the spread of Western beauty norms through mass media are part of the problem, though undoubtedly the impact of colonization continues to bear down upon the psyches of many in Asia, as well as much of the Asian diaspora, including Asian Americans. Noor Hassan, Pakistani-American, argues that desire for light skin among South Asians cannot be divorced from the impact of European colonization. And likewise, Agatha Roa, who identifies as Pacific Islander American, writes that colorism within her own Filipino family is firmly tied to colonization by Spain and the United States. Her mother was born in the post-World War II Philippines she learned that everything in America was syrupy sweet if you were white. For her mother, as perhaps for other Asian Americans raised in colonized or post-colonial countries, whiteness, the racial group, not simply light skin, is equated with beauty, but also status and ascension up the social ladder. Noelle Marie Falchus, Filipina-American, similarly describes her mother's aspiration for whiteness because as noel contends she suffers from a colonized mentality and believes that whiteness is the key to success in america according to noel her mother learned the value of whiteness in the post-colonial philippines where the indoctrination for western eurocentric traits as preferred was introduced, enforced, and solidified. Notably, Noel recognizes that the desire for whiteness is not solely about Caucasian beauty norms, but about all things Western, including European language, rather than native tongues, and Catholicism, which was introduced to the region by Spain, as opposed to their ancestral spirituality. She further contends that her mother's veneration of whiteness was additionally compounded with her migration to the United States, where the image of American success also looks overwhelmingly white. As in many parts of Asia, whiteness is esteemed in American society and is equated with financial success, social mobility and assimilation. Even the American dream was and is a white one Historically, people of color were excluded from its promise through racist exclusionary practices, such as Jim Crow laws, which reserved the best schools and public amenities for whites, restrictive covenants and outright violence, which kept people of color out of white communities, federally backed housing policies that denied home loans to people of color, and even US citizenship laws, which originally granted citizenship only to free white males. By the late 19th century, U.S. citizenship would be extended to African-Americans, though it remained elusive to immigrating Asians until the 1950s. In two landmark Supreme Court cases, Asian immigrants fought for U.S. citizenship, and they did so by claiming whiteness. They recognized that if they could be classified as white, they could obtain U.S. citizenship and hence the full protection of the law and all of the rights of American citizens. This meant the right to vote, own and lease land, serve on juries and hold public office. In Ozawa versus the United States, a Japanese immigrant, Takeo Ozawa, hoped to persuade the court that the Japanese by virtue of their light skin were white. A few months later, Bhagat Singh Tind, an Indian immigrant and former US serviceman, made a similar plea in Tind versus the United States. Though in his case he did not argue for whiteness based on shared in skin color, but rather he claimed that Indians shared common ancestry with Caucasians. Despite Ozawa's and Tin's requests for racial reclassification, the Supreme Court ruled against them both, arguing that despite their light skin, or so-called shared ancestry, they were not white. In the case of Bhagat Sin Tint, Justice George Sutherland stated, it may be true that the blonde Scandinavian and the brown Hindu have a common ancestor in the dim reaches of antiquity. But the average man knows perfectly well that there are unmistakable and profound differences between them today. It cannot be doubted that the children born in this country of Hindu parents would retain indefinitely the clear evidence of their ancestry. Despite their failures in the court, both cases reveal the desire for whiteness among some groups of color, including some Asian immigrants who quickly learned upon arrival to the United States, the immutable value of whiteness in American society. To reap its benefits, they sought to be racially defined as such. Today, Asian Americans are no longer fighting as some once did to be racially classified as white, but desires for whiteness among some Asian Americans may persist. Even today, the American dream is arguably a white one, The images of white picket fences, suburban home ownership, and financial success are intertwined with whiteness itself. This is not to say that Americans of color do not dream of success in America. Asian Americans, like whites and other groups of color, also believe in the American dream, and many immigrate to the United States in order to pursue that dream. In fact, collectively, Asian Americans have been stereotyped as highly successful, suggesting that the American dream is their reality, perhaps more so than that of other racial minorities. Though the uncomfortable truth is that there are wide economic disparities among Asian Americans. Some ethnic groups, such as the Japanese, Chinese and Indians, have been described as outwhiting the whites in terms of economic success. While some Southeast Asian-American groups who immigrated to the United States as refugees with few resources, such as Cambodians, Vietnamese, and Laotians, are trapped in intergenerational poverty. In fact, some of these ethnic groups lag well behind Latinx and African-Americans in terms of socioeconomic status. Because of the reality of unequal successes among Asian Americans, whiteness in contemporary America, as in post-colonial Asia and early America, continues to embody the American dream and economic success. And for some Asian Americans, especially first-generation immigrants looking to assimilate and climb the social ladder, whiteness remains something to which to aspire. This collection of essays explores aspirational whiteness as part and parcel of colorism for some, though certainly not all Asian-Americans, but also examines the strategies they use to access whiteness both in their real lives and their virtual worlds through, for example, skin whitening soaps, bleaching creams, and even digital self-representation online. Whitening products may be a literal manifestation of france fanon's white masks as women modify their skin color to attain whiteness though perhaps another expression of the desire to wear white masks occurs online as described by noor hassan as asian american women utilize white-skinned emojis to represent themselves on social media for some Skin whitening products are not always effective or even desirable. Therefore, digital whiteness may be a reasonable alternative. A final note. For some South and Southeast Asian Americans, attaining whiteness may not be the goal, but rather they aspire to the American stereotype of the light-skinned East Asian, which, at least according to Noelle Marie Falchus, is the next best thing. She describes how, as a Filipina-American, she once modified her skin and eyes in attempts to fit the East Asian physical stereotype, because East Asians are held in high regard in the United States as compared to some of their darker-skinned Asian counterparts. Likewise, Joanne Rondia, in her analysis of colorism among Filipinics, writes that fil- people in the Philippines using skin lighteners is not necessarily a move toward whiteness or Europeanness. It is also related to looking East Asian or Chinese. For some, East Asian beauty is valorized extremely pale skin, straight jet black hair, and large double lidded almond shaped eyes. But she, re- she reminds readers that this beauty is nonetheless defined according to white standards as these characteristics represent the ideal Asian in the eyes of Whites. Digital Whiteness Most of my friends are brown women. We have entered one another's lives through connections in communities, college, graduate and professional schools, the workplace, places of worship, and friends of friends. At 26 years old, I find that we are scattered all over the country and even the world. We reside in drastically different time zones, locales, and cultural contexts. To keep in touch, we communicate with each other in a variety of ways. Most often, we connect through social media platforms, frequently through Snapchat, Facebook, and Instagram, and express ourselves through countless posts, tweets, pictures, Snapchat videos, and emojis. When Apple introduced racially diverse emojis in recent years, they made their way into our digital social marketplaces. The reactions of my friends varied. Some were excited, others critical. Though the emojis are diverse in skin tone, other features such as hair texture and eye shape remained westernized and Eurocentric. Some friends further wondered whether now that we Now that social media platforms had given us the opportunity to attach our racial identities to our social communications, we were now culturally and socially obligated to use the newly created emojis. Some of us fought to see ourselves represented on the emoji keyboard, though perhaps this victory presents itself with unintended consequences to openly attach our racial identities and hence divulge demographic data to the material benefit of platform owners and advertisers unknown to us. Despite these arguments for me, it was a no-brainer to use the medium-toned brown woman emoji. Sure, she didn't have black hair like me, but her skin tone was consistent with mine, right in the middle of the spectrum. And to me, her brown tone best represented my South Asian identity as a Pakistani American woman. Most of my friends use these emojis, and with the rise of bitmojis, avatars that enable even more flexibility and personalization, there are seemingly endless ways to express moods, mindsets, feelings, attitudes, and activities through these tiny socio-digital cartoons. What I never anticipated from the introduction of these digital expressions of identity was a significant shift in how I perceived people of color on social media, especially brown women. I expected that most South Asian American women would choose the medium-toned emoji to express themselves, though I was surprised to find that many opted instead to use the lightest-skinned emoji. A woman with light skin and black hair. Most surprisingly, the skin tone of this emoji is even lighter than what is presumably the archetypal American white woman emoji that is illustrated with faintly bronzed white skin and blonde hair. As I noticed more and more brown women, including South Asian actresses, beauty bloggers, and social media personalities, captioning their Instagram photos and Snapchat stories with a light-skinned emoji, I grew confused. Don't you realize that you're brown, I thought. Why would brown women opt for an emoji that is obviously unrepresentative of their actual skin tone? I didn't understand why brown women, women who believe in racial justice, who disavow the impact of colonialism and prejudice on our society, who are woke, who are liberal minded, who believe in a fair and equal society, selected emojis that are not brown like them. Sure, the medium skin tone brown woman emoji isn't everyone's skin tone, maybe you are a little lighter skinned, but still, aren't you brown? Instead of opting for the emoji that reflects your racial identity, what informs your decision to swipe all the way to the left in the emoji selection pane and choose the lightest skinned digital representation of yourself? Every time I see this happen on a social media platform, I cannot help but think, why are you, a brown woman, opting for digital whiteness when there are options to express yourself with emojis that are more consistent with your racial identity and phenotype? I cannot divorce emoji usage from its underlying racial and cultural connotations. I think about the impact of European colonialism and preference towards light skin in our cultures. I know that when we walk into a dizzy grocery store anywhere in America, we find shelves full of skin lightening creams and soaps. I think about the historical South Asian aspiration to access whiteness in America, and the precept of Western assimilation as an indispensable goal. When I witness brown women of South Asian origin choosing to express themselves with the lightest skinned emoji that is available to users, these realities are undeniable. As I consider these truths, I understand why brown women, some maybe subconsciously, uh, opt for digital whiteness. Perhaps what we cannot access in reality, we appropriate digitally. These tiny characters hang off the edges of witty Instagram captions and make their ways into the corners of Snapchat stories. These ornamental cartoons are expressions not only of our feelings, but of who we are, who we want to be, and how we want to be seen. In opting for digital whiteness through the use of emojis, I find that even with new ways to communicate and express ourselves, We enter into these new digital marketplaces with the same old cultural baggage. Mrs. Santos whitening cream, Agatha Roa. Mrs. Santos eyes dart from her iPhone to the white paste on top of her left hand. For 10 minutes, the paste has been burning. A crust had formed soon after the baking soda, hydrogen peroxide solution dried and she lifts her hand toward the camera for her viewers to get a closer look. Mrs. Santos is older than most YouTube posters I've seen, in her late thirties and housewife, perhaps. Her glossy, thick black hair is cut into a neat page boy that swings when she talks and brushes past her shoulders. Her big, deep-set brown eyes reveal Spanish ancestry, and I can tell she is from the Philippines, by her accent. She is on the paler side of olive skin, and although she's Asian like me, I can easily see that without sunscreen, she'd suffer from sunburn in the summer. I am on the other side of the skin spectrum, and cannot fathom how Mrs. Santos could get any lighter without losing her natural yellow color. She waits. Sitting on her carpeted living room floor, she repeats her disclaimer. I want you all to know that I am not a medical professional, adding, and I am not a nurse. She blinks her eyes, big brown saucers. Her deep-set eyes are such a desired look that many Chinese and Koreans attempt to emulate them by undertaking an epicanthoplasty, an irreversible surgical procedure. Eyelids with a fold, I mutter. That's what everybody wants. I can't tell if Mrs. Santos is broadcasting from Vancouver, or Chicago, or Houston. And it is not her homemade recipe for skin whitening cream that irks me. From cake soap to L. Glutecline injections. The secret has been out of bathrooms and closets for years. Bleaching is on television, billboards, and magazine ads, and in the streets of New Delhi, on the store shelves of Tokyo, and in the Tondo slums in Manila. It's wrapped about and commodified, as Chinese Jamaicans sell whitening powders in the downtown markets of Kingston. The internet has made it so we can all compare formulas, mock, or inquire with abandon. The naivete in her sing-song voice annoys me as she begins to rinse off the papery glue bandage from her hand as if to demonstrate how magically easy it is to be white. The image dissolves and next we see her in a kitchen that is lit just enough to allow viewers to see her diligently rinsing, rubbing her hand, conjuring a genie out of its bottle. She grabs a towel and we cut to the final scene. She is overjoyed with the results, her plump manicured yellow hands showcased before my laptop screen. With the zoom lens, the bleached hand is ready for all the world to see and admire. It has undergone a chemical reaction with faint peeling at the edges where the burnt and unburnt skin meet. I'm fascinated and repulsed at the same time, and swallow a lump that forms in my throat. Oh, she says lightly, flexing her hands, as if there were hunks of shiny diamonds on her fingers. Deba, you see. It's white. Look at the difference. The video takes a few seconds to fade to black, yet the sadness I feel for this stranger will linger on and piss me off. Mrs. Santos is at her happiest when she looks least like herself. That epiphanic moment was paralyzing, and it brought back buried memories and a need to disengage. Dealing with the complexities of colorism in my life has taken years for me to unravel in order to save my life. Whitening videos are wounds that can be revisited reopened with ease on the internet, and I'm often baffled by the reasons why I do it. It began with my mother. Her light skin was the product of a marriage between a young Basque soldier and my grandmother. When Spain surrendered the island, only to be colonized yet again by the United States, my Lola grandmother was Mestiza indigenous and spanish living in the southern philippines so my mother too was born a mestiza what my mother never mentioned to me was that my great-grandmother descended from austronesian tribes and perhaps from dark-skinned Borneans, from indonesia and maoris from the pacific was she ashamed of that i don't know but while i was growing up the indigenous dark side was never mentioned and I watched as my pale mother never went out in the sun. One day, she told me that the pediatrician and I said I had sensitive skin, as if that would persuade me to stay indoors. Chasing me down as I ran along a Long Island beach, she would repeatedly tell me to get under some shade. I'd ask why, and she would state matter-of-factly, because, you do not want to be dark. Dark is bad. I can't really blame my mother for wanting to be something she was not. She was a product of post World War II Philippines. While she was growing up, the country was a U.S. territory, and my mother had moved from her small town of Antique to Manila to the north. I think of that period of her life as the Holly Go Lightly period just like the Truman Capote film and book, Breakfast at Tiffany's, where the main character goes from country to city girl upon moving to New York City. My mother grew up in the Technicolor age, watching Douglas Cirque melodramas, smoking cigarettes like an American 18-year-old. And as she watched Imitation of Life, she learned that everything in America was syrupy sweet and colorful if you were white. My mother loved the whiteness of New York in winter, dressing up in heavy coats to walk in the snow. She loved the whiteness of the cold air that enabled her to see every billowing breath as a cloud as she walked to church. As I got older, we couldn't have been more different, and sadly, our relationship became toxic for me. Our mother-daughter relationship was further strained when I decided to drop out of school and move across the country. I relocated to California and soaked up every ray of sunshine I could. While living on Venice Beach, I surfed, and the only time I covered myself on the beach was in winter, to don a three millimeter thick neoprene wetsuit. I took up rock climbing and spent my summers in Joshua Tree National Park. And my winter's camping in Yosemite. Never once did I consider wearing sunscreen, not that I needed it because of the melanin in my skin. I saw it as an act of rebellion against my mother. I rebelled against her, against colorism, and against whiteness. I rebelled out of self-preservation. I knew I'd never comfortably fit into a traditional New York life, The kind she wanted me to have, the lives her immigrant working-class white neighbors had. She wanted me to be like the daughters of Italian and Greek families who were smart, got accepted into elite schools, and climbed the social ladder. I was a disappointment to my immigrant parents who expected me to go on with my stellar SAT scores to be a lawyer at the very least. I never told them about the letter from NYU asking me to please reconsider attending after I left. I couldn't wait to leave. I took a camera, the one I bought for a freshman photography class, and told the college I needed a break. Over the years, my mother suffered hypertension, partly caused by stress. I knew she had a ton of internalized frustration but her need to perpetuate our differences, instead of seeking to understand them, resulted in failure. Her only daughter ran away from her and her whitewashed dreams. Mrs. Santos' latest video shows viewers how to make a quick whitening facial mask out of lemon juice, sugar, and her favorite brand of disinfectant, called Oxygenata, She waves the half-empty bottle of hydrogen peroxide, a brand only available in the Philippines, at her audience. She says the formula is guaranteed to whiten skin in only 30 minutes. Among YouTube viewers, an inverse correlation seems to exist. The lower the educational level and social class, the greater the desire to whiten one's skin via questionable means. The riskier treatment, the more destitute, and perhaps desperate, the individual. One video I observed from Jamaica used untested, possibly carcinogenic chemicals that are made cheaply in China, regularly sold over-the-counter in Kingston, and banned in the United States. I realize now that Mrs. Santos may not be a housewife. Perhaps she is the live-in nanny or the housekeeper. The frugality of her recipes now begins to make sense to me. I came to this conclusion after a conversation with a very distant cousin, Fernanda, who lives in Ibaraki Prefecture, an upper-middle-class suburb outside Tokyo. I see pictures of her on Facebook, In one taken in her front yard. Her vellum skin is shielded from the sunlight, peeking through a Japanese maple tree. She has dark-skinned nannies for the children, and servants with kind brown faces and soft voices. I begin to see Mrs. Santos in one of these photographs. The shyness, the servitude in her polite, kind voice, and I suspect Mrs. Santos is nothing like a golf-playing suburban mom. Instead, she's a part of the post-colonial mixed messages fed to her by skin whitening soap ads, just as my mother was back in the day. If she were upper middle class, why would she be slaving in a kitchen, perfecting homemade whitening recipes? We all know she would have gone to a Vancouver spa to seek treatment from a licensed aesthetician, and the spa would be located around the corner from a plastic surgeon, the kind who, with the utmost discretion, routinely performs double eyelid surgery on Asian women. It all comes full circle. As upset as I am with Mrs. Santos, we are both Asian, and as in my relationship with my mother, I want desperately to believe that we're more alike than I originally perceived. We're alike in our Asian features, no matter how light or dark. We are beautiful in our brown skin, in spite of the insidious messages, whitening cream manufacturers and mainstream media may try to market to us. Shade of Brown I first learned of my supposed outward deficiencies when I was 12. I have a vivid memory of standing in my grandmother's kitchen, where, by the table, she closely watched me as I played. When I finally looked up to ask why she was staring, her expression changed from that of intent observer to one of guilt and shame. Her mouth opened and she cleared the phlegm lodged in her throat. My anak, dear child, she began, you are so beautiful. It is a shame that you are so dark. No Filipino man will ever want to marry you. At the time that this bit of abrasive news was delivered to me, I had not yet begun the process of understanding my skin tone and all its connotations. My best friend growing up was also Filipina, and she was just as dark as I. Both of us a deep, burnished brown, the color of the clay found in the Southern California desert around us. We grew up surrounded by Latinos and African Americans, and the few Filipinos whom we knew were also dark-skinned. Because of the regularity with which I saw dark skin, colorism was outside my experience. Due to this, my grandmother's words appeared more confounding than painful. Later, her words would resurface with my mother, but in a more subversive, nonverbal way. My mother had always played an integral role in my hygienic routine. During my teens, she brought home cardboard boxes filled with Lika's brand herbal soap, a papaya-scented soap that promised skin whitening, the language unapologetically precise and explicit. She would make me scrub myself multiple times a night to ensure that I had optimized the possibility for the whitest skin. It became... Our daily ritual so normalized through sheer frequency that I did not recognize the routine for its insidiousness and believed and the way it silently wove insecurity into my psyche. My mother believed that with this soap, we could erase the reality that I was a brown body living in sun-drenched California. She, like my grandmother, worried about my dark skin While they were both endowed with pale skin, I inherited my father's skin, the kind of skin shared by Filipino workers who labor in the fields under the relentless sun. I think my mother was ashamed of my skin, for in our culture, skin color is synonymous with social class. By one's shade of brown, social status is visually discerned and cemented. As Filipino immigrants, my parents also worried that the color of our skin would complicate our transition into American society, and hence our future financial success. Suffering from a colonized mentality, they believed that regardless of how my siblings and I dressed, how kind we rendered our faces, how stellar our academic profiles, or how many extracurricular activities we logged, none of this would ever be enough to erase what people would see first the color of our skin this became motive to push us further we had to do more to do the best even to differentiate ourselves from the other dark-skinned minorities in america our individual qualities that rightfully should have been should have determined our successes remained invisible rather What my parents saw were all the things that we were not, all the things that marked us as different from the better American children, those who were white, blonde, and blue-eyed. My mother understood early on what qualities were needed to advance in the Western world. She recognized them because she had been taught them well before her arrival to American shores, back when she still lived in the Philippines there, Western colonization already had a firm grip upon the island culture. The Philippines were colonized by Spain for nearly 400 years, during which the indoctrination of preference for Western Eurocentric traits was introduced, enforced, and solidified. This was not with beauty alone. To speak one's native tongue, as opposed to Castilian Spanish, indicated one's peasantry class. To practice one's ancestral spirituality was a direct offense to Spanish Catholicism, and in many cases, capitally punished, and one's outward appearance, skin color, dictated whether one belonged to the upper echelon of society or was from the barangays or barrios. Filipinos watched those of Spanish descent including Mestizos, those with mixed native and Spanish blood, reap the rewards of society and ascend the social ladder. To achieve upward mobility, Filipinos learned that all things native were inferior, while all things European were held to be in high esteem. Because the brainwashing of Filipinos started many centuries ago, my mother and grandmother already understood the value of whiteness long before they arrived to America. The additional information they received upon migration only compounded this understanding. They saw firsthand the ugly ways in which dark-skinned people were viewed and treated in America, with contempt, condescending, condescension and discrimination. Perceptions of danger, threat, and distrust were not lost on them, and rather than question the morality or verity of the stereotypes, my mother and grandmother worried that we would be lumped into the very same category. They wanted nothing more than to prove that we were outstanding representatives of the American citizen mirrors to the successful white Americans who epitomized the United States. They wanted essentially the pinnacle of the immigrant dream, the portrait of American white success. Thinking about my mother's struggle, I realized that it it was not just that we couldn't be white, but also that we didn't fit the next best thing, the model minority stereotype that held Asian Americans up as a model for other groups of color. This affluent model minority is often imagined in the United States as East Asian, wealthy, highly educated, and most importantly, light-skinned. Wealth and skin tone intertwined and seemingly inseparable. We did not look the part, so my mother struggled under the weight of this knowledge. As I've grown, I've watched her struggle and I have felt the weight of her pain in my own body. I remained unaware for so long of how I had begun to embody the same expectations, failures, and frustrations. In the same way that my mother disapproved of her own body, I had begun to do the same. Growing up, I was constantly bothered that I didn't look like the stereotypical Asian. The bulk of my teenage years were spent trying to stay out of the sun and trying to do my makeup in such a way as to make my eyes appear more Asian, both actions being forms of visual modification. I actively went out of my way to befriend more light-skinned Asians and became more informed about East Asian culture, as if there were a way I could have integrated and hid myself into the better culture. I am more aware now of how I was performing a self-erasure, trying to minimize the parts of myself that were Hispanicized Filipino and make more clear the aspects that were aligned with model Asian appearance. When I was in high school, I dated a Korean boy. In a moment of brutal honesty, he confessed to me that the relationship couldn't and wouldn't go anywhere. Impressed as to why, he evaded my question with a new one, how could it? He then launched into the passive, dismissive, yet inevitable truth that he was Korean and I was a dark-skinned Asian. How could he ever bring someone like me home? Could you imagine? He pointedly asked. The realization that I would never be the type of girl that a light-skinned Asian man could take home horrified me. It was something that I felt certain I had to correct, even though I knew I could not erase my skin, my features, or my country's history. His words also highlighted another uncomfortable truth. The hierarchies that exist between Asian American ethnic groups regarding skin color and the taboos of light-skinned, often East Asian groups, dating and intermarrying with those from South, Southeast, Pacific Islander Asia. Colorism is rampant within my own community, but also across Asian America, positioning Asian ethnic groups along their own social hierarchy, and at times pitting them against each other. As I look back now, I cannot blame him for his words. He was, like me, chained by a culture steeped in colorism. Even today, I often find myself locked in an internal meditation, sorting what beliefs are genuinely my own from what was culturally passed to me, both from my Filipino and from my American cultures. Growing up in America, I learned that I was not beautiful in a Western way. And through my interactions with other Asians, I learned that I did not fit the Eastern standard either. Today, the voice of Asian America grows louder, and with growing diversity and multiculturalism in America, I am beginning to understand that our definitions of beauty matter. Those young years of defining self-worth come and pass quickly, and who I am now is heavily informed by my struggles. What I once understood as markers of negative difference, I am now beginning to view with reverence. As America experiences the cultural shift of women and minorities becoming more persistent in voicing their discontent, with the incongruities of equality sewn into the fabric of our society, I have become empowered by my uniqueness. We are still finding the language in which to address the ways we internalize cultural expectations and all the negative connotations that come with this. But with each step forward, we are becoming more aware, more empowered, more persistent. As we go, I watch with delight the shifts that happen for me internally, erasing the things that I had once allowed to erase myself. Anti-Blackness When Ariana Miyamoto was crowned Miss Universe Japan in 2015, she broke unspoken barriers. She was born and raised in Japan and is a Japanese citizen, though she was no ordinary Japanese beauty queen, primarily because she was born to a Japanese mother and an African-American father. Because of her racial background, her win garnered international attention, and many in Japan openly questioned her japanese Is it okay to select a hafu, a half-Japanese person, to represent Japan, Miss Universe Japan is... what? Even though she's Miss Universe Japan, her for- her face is foreign no matter how you look at it. Her mixed-race background drew both interest and criticism, though Martin Fackler of the New York Times argues that experts on pageants say it is precisely because she is half-black that she has gotten so much attention because her victory overturned an unspoken hierarchy in which those with lighter skin color have long been celebrated as the most beautiful. Had she been part white, she might have received similar criticisms, though the intensity of the backlash might have been markedly different. For many, and perhaps for Ariana Miyamoto herself, there may be no doubt that her blackness and dark skin were the primary issues of contention. In the previous section, authors discussed colorism within the context of aspirational whiteness. In this section, authors explore anti-blackness and its connection to skin color discrimination among Asian Americans. Anti-black sentiment exists in many parts of the world, many parts of the world, including the United States, Asia, and Asian America. As blackness is juxtaposed in direct opposition to whiteness and is linked with a host of negative stereotypes and degrading racist tropes. While whiteness and light skin is often associated with superiority, intelligence and beauty, blackness and dark skin is frequently linked to inferiority, lack of intelligence, backwardness, ugliness and dirtiness. In addition to anti-black stereotypes, those of African descent also face blatant discrimination worldwide, including across Asia. In India, for example, Africans are commonly stereotyped as prostitutes, cannibals, and people snatchers. In 2017, young Africans studying in Indian universities shared their personal stories of being targets of racial slurs verbal threats, physical aggression, brutal assaults, and even mob violence. Nigerian chemistry student Saharadin Muhammad spoke of daily verbal abuse on the streets of Greater Noida near Delhi, such as Hey Bandar, Hey Monkey, and other Africans described endless stares and aggressive posturing by Indian locals and general perceptions of feeling unsafe in public spaces. A 2013 survey by the Washington Post found India to be one of the least racially tolerant countries in the world, and widely reported racial attacks in recent years further reveal the deep prejudices specifically against Africans in India. In 2014, a mob of Indian men attacked three African university students in a Delhi metro station with fists and sticks while shouting Baharat Mata Kijai or victory for mother India. In 2016, a 21 year old Tanzanian woman was stripped naked and beaten in Bengaluru by a mob of locals purportedly as revenge for a car accident caused by a Sudanese man, under the assumption that because both were black, they must have known each other. While in the hospital, she told reporters, we are now scared of every Indian around us. In the same year, a Congolese national was beaten to death in New Delhi by a mob of men over a dispute regarding the hiring of a rickshaw His friend said it was a clear hate crime, with racial epithets repeatedly invoked. Namisha Jaiswal, a reporter based in India, warns, Being black in India can be deadly. Anti-blackness exists in other parts of Asia as well, including China, which in 2018 banned hip-hop, a music and dance genre rooted in African-American culture from television and popular streaming sites, as part of a crackdown on what the government deemed low-taste content. Rappers, even Chinese rappers, were censored, and fans of the popular television show Super Brian, which is not hip-hop related, watched as one contestant had his hip-hop style necklace blurred out. A few years prior, anti black racism was evident in an ad for a Chinese laundry detergent, deemed by some as perhaps the most racist ad ever. In the spot for the Chinese detergent brand, Xiao Bi, a beautiful Chinese woman playfully beckons a black man, splattered with paint, towards her. Once she lures him close enough for a kiss, she pops out a detergent pod into his mouth. And shoves him into the washing machine. When he emerges, voila! He is squeaky clean and rises from the machine, magically transformed into an Asian man. The linkage of blackness with dirt is a reflection of broader anti black sentiment, and the ad arguably a symptom of the deep prejudice toward black people in China and across Asia. Some argue that the homogeneity and lack of diversity in some parts of Asia explain anti-black bias. Perhaps limited contact with other racial groups is the real culprit here. A. Moore writes that those of African descent visiting China should not be surprised if they are stared at or swarmed by locals snapping their photo, touching their hair, rubbing their skin, and asking them a litany of questions that reflect their ignorance and lack of interaction with black people. However, while those of African descent typically face prejudice and discrimination, it bears notice that whites are often on the receiving end of praise, positive attention, and shows of respect, suggesting that lack of interaction is not the only explanation for anti-blackness. Asians in some parts of Asia have limited contact with both Blacks and whites, as well as other racial groups, though the treatment of Blacks is markedly different from that of other racial groups. In Taiwan in 2008, one prestigious private school advertised on social media for substitute English teachers to teach four and five-year-olds in New Taipei City. In addition to routine information about salary and location, was a postscript inserted by the poster of the advert. The school has informed me that it will not accept applications from people who are not from predominantly English-speaking countries or who are black or dark-skinned. The job requirement reportedly sparked outrage among the expat community in Taiwan after the ad went viral on social media. Though the ad is a clear example of blatant racism, a closer look at Taiwan reveals deep complexities in the treatments of Blacks. Nicole Cooper, African-American, blogged about her experiences living in Taiwan and describes them as both positive and negative. The majority of her interactions with locals have been positive and affirming. Though she stands out in Taiwan because of the racial homo- homogeny there, she says that being black in Asia is like being a unicorn. She finds locals to be polite and sometimes even complimentary of her hair and skin. She admits, however, that when it comes to English speaking jobs, especially in education, white employees are the most preferred because white is right mentality still exists in Taiwan. Dave Hassan In A piece on anti-black racism in South Korea takes a harsher perspective on racism there, observing that, one way or another, racism affects almost every foreigner in Korea. But being black here is different. Whether African American, African, or not even black but mistaken for it, experiences in Korea are tainted by the perception that blacks are lower than other races. Blacks are violent, unintelligent, and poor. Black Americans are not really American and inappropriate teachers for Korean children. Africans live in a backward, single African country consisting of little more than a jungle. Certainly these views are not universal, but they are commonly heard in Korea. Hazan reports on the struggles of black teachers in finding employment in Korea, their difficulty hailing taxis, their daily harassment in public spaces, as well as stories of Koreans refusing to share elevators or subway cars with them. Moreover, visitors to South Korea often learn that the no foreigners allowed rule for some bars and clubs generally means no black foreigners, while white people enter just fine. Sam Okier, a Ganon Ghanaian television personality, and arguably the most famous black man in Korea, speaks of his early experiences in South Korea before achieving celebrity status. People stared at him everywhere he went, taxi and bus drivers would not pick him up, and fellow travelers on the subway refused to sit next to him. Describing his more innocent interactions with Korean children, he says... The little kids would come and try to lick your skin, thinking it's chocolate. Some children, when they see me, they try to take a napkin and clean my skin. They think by doing so, it's going to turn white or get lighter or cleaner. Lack of interactions with black people partially explains the prejudices there, but so do persistent negative stereotypes of black people. Moreover, anti-black racism is not simply a problem confined to Asia, but is also an issue found within Asian American communities. Some of the anti-black racism found in Asian American communities is transported over in the baggage from Asia itself. As Asians migrate to America, though Asian, Amer- Asian immigrants also learn anti-blackness upon their arrival to American shores. According to writer Jessica Chung in 2017, as Asian immigrants work toward building successes in a foreign environment, they begin taking cues from the people they see as the most successful. Because of America's historical oppression of people of color, these people are usually white. To many Asian Americans, whiteness often becomes equated to success and all of the elements that have been conditioned to come with the paradigms of whiteness. One of those historically speaking has been anti-blackness. She argues that Asian Americans must recognize that the fight for social justice for black Americans is linked to their own struggles for equality and justice. Asian Americans may think of themselves as better than black people, though she reminds us that Asian-Americans are frequently seen as perpetual foreigners rather than true Americans. Further, Kim Chambonpin, a law professor at the University of Chicago, maintains that Asian-American desires to move up the social ladder often center on anti-Black racism and the belief that in order to move up the ladder, they must step on the shoulders of Blacks and then not pull them up, but crush them heel to head. Of course, they do not have to step on Black Americans on their way up, but perhaps this is their perception in a race-based, competition-oriented, capitalist society. Furthermore, racial stereotypes learned in the United States, both negative and positive, contribute to anti-Black sentiment among Asian Americans. Black-white relations in America with the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow segregation, have been particularly contentious, and negative stereotypes of American blacks abound. Anti-black stereotypes are broad and deep in American society, and routinely reinforced through mass media platforms, such as American film, television, music, and even social media. Certainly, this list is not exhaustive. No African-American, no matter how powerful, rich, or successful, is immune. Former U.S. President Barack Obama, multiracial with black and white ancestry, faced a barrage of racist stereotypes spread through social media leading up to and during his eight-year presidency. They were frequently portrayed in ape and monkey-like depictions. his wife Michelle Obama was called an ape in heels by a sitting West Virginia mayor. The association of apes and monkeys with American blacks is a long-standing racist trope in the United States and endures even today. Comedian Roseanne Barr's widely popular rebooted sitcom Roseanne was abruptly cancelled in 2018 after a single season When she publicly insinuated on Twitter that one of Obama's former senior advisors, a woman with African ancestry, was an ape. Because of these negative stereotypes and dehumanizing characterizations, it should be no surprise that Asian Americans would want to distance themselves from American Blacks. Moreover, even a seemingly positive stereotype, such as the model minority stereotype, often ascribed to Asian Americans, contributes to anti-blackness. The stereotype asserts that Asian Americans are highly successful economically in America, and should be held up as a model for other minorities to emulate, including African Americans, though the stereotype is highly problematic and misleading. Journalist Chris Fuchs argues that the model-minority stereotype masks wide economic disparities among Asian Americans and causes great anxiety and stress among second-generation Asian American children who are expected to live up to the image. According to Suman Raghunathan, Executive Director of South Asian Americans Leading Together, The model minority stereotype is not just a myth, but really a farce and perhaps an intended byproduct of the stereotype is its divisiveness among people of color. According to the stereotype, if Asian Americans can work hard and be successful, so too can black Americans. If blacks cannot achieve financial success, then, as the stereotype contends, there must be something wrong with them. Laziness, lack of desire, or even lack of intelligence, while at the same time, the stereotype glosses over several hundred years of institutional discrimination directed at those of African descent, slavery, Jim Crow segregation, and well-documented institutional discrimination that persists today. This narrative positions Asian Americans as a better racial group, while willfully ignoring Asian ethnic groups who do not fit the model minority stereotype. It also conditions those of Asian descent to see themselves as superior to American blacks and even blame blacks when they do not achieve comparable educational and financial success. Hence, what is intended to be a positive stereotype of Asian Americans, though deeply flawed and outright false, serves as a further catalyst for anti-black bias. In a 2017 article about anti-blackness among Asians and Asian Americans, contributor Tyrus Townsend further claims that anti-blackness is entwined with an aversion to dark skin. He writes, The rejection of brown bodies seems to live within Asian American communities, which I argue is clearly problematic for African Americans, but also for those Asian Americans with dark skin. Perhaps the disdain for brown bodies, even their own, can be observed in former Louisiana governor Bobby Jindal, Indian American and brown-skinned, who made headlines in 2015 when a portrait of him hanging in the state capitol portrayed him with white skin. One cultural commentator facetiously asked, was brown paint busy when they created this Bobby Jindal portrait? And Twitter users joked, who's the white guy? And will they be releasing the colorized version? Even Jindal himself, responding to the backlash, asked in jest, you mean I'm not white? Though he downplayed the flap and described the criticism of the painting as silly. This was not the only time, however, that Jindal's skin was front and center. Another self-portrait that hung in his office similarly appeared whitewashed and some wondered if his skin in official government photographs had been lightened. Perhaps Bobby Jindal's case is an anomaly, though research suggests that dark skin is reviled among Asian Americans and self-disdain, especially among those with dark skin may not be uncommon. In this collection of essays, women write about anti-blackness in their Asian, Asian American communities, and how anti-black racism is closely entwined with the aversion to dark skin in their respective ethnic groups and in their own families. Sarah Hussein, Pakistani American, writes about creationist stories embedded in Pakistani culture, i.e. stories about God's creation of different races, which, she argues, reinforce anti-blackness colorism among Pakistanis and Pakistani Americans. Further, she contends that dark skin is equated with blackness and dirt, thus contributing to self-hate that trickles down from generation to generation. Wendy Thompson Taiwo, who is multiracial Chinese and Black, writes about anti-blackness in American society and in her Chinese-American community. She considers what it means to be brown in America, how anti-Black racism is tied to disdain for dark skin, and how her dark skin and Black ancestry have shaped her life. Blackness in America is tied to a host of negative stereotypes, with which, as a multiracial woman, she must constantly contend. Finally, Marimas Hosan Mustiller, Chum, American, and mother of a multiracial child, Wonders if her child, Asian and Black, will experience life as a perpetual outsider because of her Blackness and dark skin. She describes the anti-Black racism she sees in her Cambodian-American community and in the United States, and considers what this will mean for her daughter's future. Creation Stories Galoshes splashing through muddy puddles, my older sister Afia ran home from bus 59, distraught and drenched. Her tears flowed faster than some of the precipitation that Monday afternoon. They said I'm too dark, Mamu, she blubbered about her classmates' taunts. Mamu attempted to decipher his niece's words through muffled, snotty slurps, and despite the challenge, he caught the gist. Now, my family wasn't unaware of or inexperienced with the racism directed toward people of color in the United States. They had had their fair share of it. Twice or thrice was more than enough to understand the racial lay of the land. During the height of the first Gulf War, patients frequently associated my physician parents' Hussein surname with the black sheep of our family, Uncle Saddam. Humor effectively eviscerates racism. Thanks, John Stewart, Trevor Noah, and two dope queens. Back to the blubbering. In an attempt to console his niece, Mamulu relayed to her a story that he had been told by his parents. When Allah was creating us human beings out of the clay, he had to bake us in the oven the white people you see, Afia, Allah took them out of the oven too early. As for the black people, Allah burnt them. And us brown-skinned people, well, Allah took us out of the oven in perfect time. We're just right. Her pain alleviated from the kindergarten bullying, Afia triumphantly strode into her classroom the next day with a story that shocked her classmates. <laughs> Everyone can see your thong tan lines, Mumani exclaims. She is referring to the light triangular marks left in the ruins of the surrounding black skin, blackened skin on my feet, not my ass. How can you tolerate those stripes on your skin? My aunt's words were inspired by my vivid tan lines, her diatribe followed by orders to vigorously scrub my feet. It's telling, I reflect. That darkened skin from the sun's penetration is equated to dirt that can be scrubbed off. But Mamani, like every human being, has context. She grew up in Hyderabad, a former princely state in India. I have never visited Hyderabad, yet it is part of me. Growing up, I've learned that colorism seems to comfortably coexist with the culture. As children, many of us were fed the overly simplistic story of a ruling elite Muslim class, with Arab and Persian blood, light-skinned, who invaded and conquered the indigenous, dark, Dravidian race of the Indian subcontinent. This historically inaccurate narrative continues to dominate the discourse on colorism and fosters divisions among us. But isn't fostering divisions among oppressed communities a goal of colonialism? Though I ponder, it is one thing to assign blame for collective self-hate to the British. It is another to jettison all responsibility while we, at the same time, perpetuate the colorism ourselves. Whatever explanation I can think of is deficient. So there is context. But there is also the reality that feelings of self-hate trickle down from generation to generation. The dirt associated with tanning brown skin is real. For me, there is nothing wrong with my black toes. I look at my feet as I respond to momani, but they're not even black. Why is whiteness our standard?" She proceeded with skillful intonation, gesticulating with drama and a forceful voice. Annette, a white presenting Argentinian literature professor, came into the library reference area at my workplace with some questions. It also seemed as though she simply wanted to chat with my coworker and I about our cultural backgrounds. And she was reminded of a story. God was baking human beings in his large creation oven. He took us out at separate times So our skin was different shades. White-skinned humans were tossed in Europe, brown-skinned humans in the Middle East, and black-skinned humans were tossed in Africa. Upon hearing that I, too, had a version of the story, Annette concluded her telling with, What's your version? I led with, It's super anti-black, but this is how you ruin a story. You do not lead with conclusion. Build it up. Let your listeners come to their own conclusions. She came to that very conclusion. I reflect upon how racial harmony or solidarity does not exist within a vacuum. It is often oppositional to some oppressive reality. But what if the oppressed take on oppressor qualities? In my family, I'll say with certainty that we have absorbed anti-black sentiment As a legacy of colonial education, my skin isn't light enough, my hair is too curly, and how do I make my lips appear less full? American fashion magazines instruct their readers to wear dark lipstick to make full lips appear smaller, I comply. So while colorism and all its ugliness can be inherited, what about individual accountability for these mindsets? I call out myself first. The sun's rays warmed the skin under my sandals on a Friday morning this past September. My Venezuelan college friend was summoned to the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Detention and Deportation Center for a random check-in to review her DACA status. We walked briskly to the building, her breath shortening from anxiety. Why this check-in? This was the second one in the past year, and it must be due to the policies of our Orange-in-Chief. How did Allah go about baking him? Having left our cell phones in the car because they are banned in the center, we walked through the metal detector beat-free. The waiting room was icy silent, as immigrants, most of them at least here, brown watch the doors to the ICE offices swing open and shut, patiently waiting for decisions on their fates. After entering the office for the check-in, I sat with my friend opposite the stocky, lightly-baked ICE officer with a buzz cut, a massive American flag and patriotic slogans emblazoned across his office wall. Staring at the huge red, white, and blue flag, That for many symbolizes whiteness, I was reminded of the creation story of America, which prides itself on being one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. So what about my friend's potential deportation from a country she's known as home for most of her life? Just as Mamu's creation story reinforcing colorism and anti-blackness, the creation narrative of this nation is a myth that similarly reinforces these mentalities. When will whiteness not be our standard?